I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst and artist based in Sweden who works with people internationally. And this is episode 233 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Mary Wilde, a Freudian cinephile and host of the projection series at the Freud Museum, London. She is also co-host of Projections Podcast with Sarah Cleaver. She contributed the foreword to my new book, Psychoanalytic Perspectives on the Films of Ingmar Bergman, From Freud to Lacan and Beyond. Join us on Sunday, March 12th at 2 p.m. New York City time, which is 6 p.m. in the UK and 1900 in Central European time at Morbid Anatomy Museum live via Zoom for David Bowie's music videos and filmography, a live online presentation with Mary Wilde, co-hosted by myself and Carl Abrahamson. You can find tickets to that event at morbidanatomy.org events or psychartcult.org. You can follow Mary Wilde on social media at Psychstar and join her Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Mary Wilde for exclusive content every week. You can also support Rendering Unconscious Podcast at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. We also offer exclusive content every week at our Patreon, and we thank you so much for your support. You can follow me on social media at rawsin underscore or at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. Links to everything can be found at the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. Hi, Mary. I'm so happy to have you back on the podcast. Hey, Vanessa. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's nice to speak to you again. It's always nice to chat with you. So what do you have going on now? I mean, yeah, it's just like lots of new work has come my way. All good stuff. But the biggest commitment now is um, I signed a book deal. So exciting. Yeah, thank you so much. So basically, that's going to be the title is Psychoanalyzing Horror Cinema. So it's going to be an adaptation of segments that I produced for the Evolution of Horror podcast, sort of um, bring them, bringing them all together, collecting them all in one space for the book. And yeah, it's basically uh, focusing on various subgenres and doing sort of little mini analyses of, well, I'm predicting a hundred titles for the book. Whoa. There'll be... Yeah, 100 films, uh, 10 per chapter. So there'll be 10 chapters. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, it's it's kind of a new process of work for me because I never really had the impulse to write previously. 
uh, I didn't really think of myself as a as a writer um, because I've normally just been lecturing or podcasting. And when Mike, the guy who hosts the Evolution of Horror podcast, you know, I kind of always knew that there was going to be a performance aspect to it because I would write the script and then narrate it. And so I think that was um, a nice entry point into writing because it was something I was already familiar with. I had like the the voice element. So it wasn't that daunting to sit down and, de- and write the segments because for, th- for this particular project, you know, they are scripted. I have to write them down and then I, nar- I narrate them. So I think that over time, I just created so many of these segments. Um, I've written uh, almost 50 of them now. Oh, wow. That- Wild you know, about that, horror. Wild about horror. Yeah, that's what the series is called on his show. And I think over time, um, you know, when you find yourself in a kind of process of repeating the same task, and then you end up with a certain amount of content, it suddenly dawned on me, well, actually, I'm sitting on this material, you know, it would it would be nice to collect them all together. So that's how this book came about. That's wonderful. And that's a great idea. I mean, you might as well put it together and get it out there in another format for people to enjoy. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, um, and, and, you know, it it forces me also to work in a style that challenges me because I don't want to be stuck in my comfort zone. You know, I want to be tested and sort of try and expand my skills in a different medium. Um, because I always just used to say like, oh no, I'm a video person or I'm a, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of more, uh, spontaneous, just sort of, um, you know, like on a whim talking, conversation, podcasting, lecturing, you know, um, but it is, it is good to try and just, yeah, master a different medium or at least test the waters and, and see like how far you get. Cause otherwise you just never know. Absolutely. And you reach a different audience as well, because the people who listen to horror podcasts might not be the same people that read uh, books about psychoanalysis and horror. Yeah, that's true. That's true. More people will be able to reference you more readily as well in book form. Yeah, I mean, that's another big component of it, because it occurred to me that referencing is an issue in the sense that often I think Maybe some people get the wrong idea if you present your content in a podcast or in a lecture. I think people think that it's that those ideas are sort of up for grabs because they just heard them somewhere and then it's easier to appropriate that idea and like claim it for yourself. Whereas if it's actually documented and officially like in a conventional way recorded in a book, then you know it, it's it's more I feel like the 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 boundaries are more clear. Um, yeah. So I just really want to ensure, you know, the safeguarding of these ideas, because at, at the end of the day, you know, I put hard work into the stuff that I put out there. It doesn't, you know, I'm not just giving away freebies. <laughs> you put so much work. It's so clear that you do. And so much Thank research you. and reading. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to our event coming up at Morbid Anatomy. Oh, yeah, and David Bowie and, and all of his videography and filmography. Oh, my gosh. You did a course on that at the Freud Museum with everything. So this, I'm assuming, will be like a condensed version of like select select few films and videos. 
Yeah. So basically um, what happened was a few years ago, so this is like a year after Bowie passed away, Freud Museum asked me to produce an in-house, like in-venue course on David Bowie. And they told me I could focus on whatever I wanted. And since I'm more of a visual arts person, as opposed to a music historian, I wanted to focus on the patterns that we see in his music videos and then his filmography. Like that is to say the movies that he starred in, because there are also movies that are made about Bowie. I'm not including those. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we ran the course in 2017. Obviously, this is pre-COVID. And then when the pandemic hit, um, you know, we wanted to bring that course online. So it was brought back. It was the same content, just produced online. So what I'm going to be offering to uh, for your program at Morbid Anatomy will be an abridged, condensed aspect of what I've taught before on David Bowie. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of his. I love his music. He's absolutely my favorite artist of all time. So um, there is, a, of course, that interest and passion, but I'm particularly interested in what he's achieving visually within the domain domains of you know music videos and the films that he chose to star in. I'm so excited. I did the Bowie at, at, online at the Freud Museum, and I am so excited to see it again because it is so good. And even though you know, I'm presenting stuff about Bowie, can we talk about Moon Age Daydream? Yes, lots. You saw it recently. Movie. I watched it. I rented it and I watched it three or four times in one weekend. And I just sat and made cut ups and collages like all weekend while watching it over and over again. It was so good and inspiring. Oh my god, that is so cool. That is amazing. I mean, I'm not surprised that you felt moved and inspired after watching that to create your own art because yeah, I can see, I can see how that would, you know, it, it would create that impulse for sure. It's such a beautiful film. It is. And he actually, because Bowie used cut-ups as well, and he used cut-ups mm-hmm. to make his lyrics a lot of the time. And uh, and he actually talks about it quite a bit in the movie, his process of using cut-ups and kind of his philosophy, which I thought was really nice, like kind of his life philosophy. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting to think about Bowie also emerging out of a family with a very sort of difficult um, concern and preoccupation about psychosis and and schizophrenia. You know, two of his aunts were psychotic. His brother was, you know, was also diagnosed with psychosis and was um, institutionalized in in London, you know, in the suburbs, in a suburb of London at, at a hospital called Cane Hill. And um, and Bowie always, you know, grew up worrying that that illness would also touch him and that he would become, you know, psychotic. But he always spoke about it in the the terms of a cut up. He always talks about psychosis as a fragmented condition, you know, like a, a split up or cut up position. Yeah, like... Um, it's it's possible to speculate that maybe the cut the cut up method was also a way for him to integrate his sense of fragmentation into his artistry. And in fact, if we look at even an album like Aladdin Sane, you know, um, of course, you know that is 
touching directly on his fear of psychosis and being kind of atomized and alienated from his environment. And that's also why he really was interested in extraterrestrial symbology as well. And even Ziggy Stardust was a a stage persona invented to um, express artistically his feeling of being like an alien, an outsider, because he was always worried about not kind of being fully integrated into the, I guess, the, the, the kind of symbolic order in a way. Like it is a very psychotic preoccupation. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. And I wonder if like his taking, like harnessing the that in a way, like having all these different kind of personas, um, it, you know, for, through his different musical albums and like kind of playing with it a bit was a way to kind of work with it and kind of put you put it to good good use instead of having it kind of take over his life in a way that felt uncontrolled, you know, because I think often of the cut ups and I think why they're so amazing to work with, especially when you work with writing, is because you cut it up and you rearrange it, but it says things that sometimes are really poignant or it says things that like really give you these kind of like aha moments just like when you have a good like scan in in a psychoanalytic session and you have like an aha moment you can get those through cut-ups a lot and so I think it mirrors kind of how we all are unconsciously anyway like very fragmented with all these different associations and making these different connections um that, that could be you know seen as random but are really not um yeah. And so I think it mirrors our kind of unconscious state in a way. And a lot of times I think of psychosis as like someone who's just kind of in the unconscious and they don't have, you know, the ego to kind of uh, moderate between the outside world and the unconscious. They're just kind of in it all the time and they can't really control it. And, you know, sometimes that could be really ecstatic, but a lot of times it's really like horrifying and terrifying. And so maybe like playing with the cutups was a way for him to like suture things together and create his own narrative rather than feeling like it's gonna yeah overtake him in a negative way yeah beautifully said I mean I tend to agree with that theory fully because you know in many interviews he expressed um the fact that he did try psychotherapy but that specifically wasn't as effective as the artistic methods he was employing to address this concern that he was actually able to um, achieve a kind of grounding effect within a moment where he felt alienated, you know, through his methodology, through cut-ups, through sage personas, through reinventing himself as an artist, you know, and not necessarily just sticking to one aesthetic. You know, he was constantly in a in a process of transition. And, um, and yeah, I tend to fully agree. I think he achieved a great deal of insight and catharsis, you know, a lot of like restoration of, of, of really kind of inherited family trauma. Like historically, this was a big problem in his family. You know, people talked about the psychotic condition in a very taboo way. And then his brother, you know, suffered and he was sort of shipped away. Like he was kind of like packed, packed away and put in this kind of like, you know, place hidden away from society. And it was shameful. Um, A really good film, actually, that showcases his, you know, his state of mind and 
what you know how he related to his family and then how that also informed his decision making as an artist is actually a film called Stardust um he, this is not going to be included in the course I'll be teaching because it's actually um it's like a biopic so I'm not looking at that necessarily I will mention it in you know in passing but I will recommend people watching that because um it's sort of in this period of time when he was sort of early 70s when he was trying to promote his album The Man Who Sold the World and um he was trying to get noticed in America and at the same time was really in a place of tension and struggling and feeling guilty about the fact that his brother Terry was, you know, in an insane asylum and that, you know, he had all this freedom and like new opportunities coming his way, but his brother was locked away somewhere. And um, and he always credited his brother, Terry, for introducing him to music, you know, and culture. He took David Bowie out on the town in Soho in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Like, he was a big part of educating David Bowie, you know, um, in terms of the arts. And so it's it must have felt so sad that he wasn't able to then share his success and just his journey with his brother, because now his brother's kind of removed. He's sort of plucked away out of his experience. And um, the movie really illustrates that be beautifully. I thought it was a great film. But yeah, I mean, th this these problems and, and these issues are, you know, themes that recur quite a lot in David Bowie's, I would say, music videos and sometimes also some, you know, some of his films too. But I would say especially his music videos. It's so interesting. It almost sounds like survivor's guilt, you know, that like he got out yeah. and then his brother got uh, institutionalized like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. I mean, um, there's also, you know, the, on the album Outside, there's a song called Jump, they say. And that is actually about the very sad and tragic fact that his brother, um, you know, took his own life by jumping out of 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 uh, a high window at Cane Hill, and that's how he passed away. So, um, you know, this is this remained something that really haunted him, um, and it's terribly sad that um, you know so, there are just some people that don't ever get a chance to experiment and try to integrate those things that they struggle with in a healthy way, in a, in a sublimated way, in a functional way, so that they can actually go on to live their lives, be free people, you know, fall in love and do good work. And for, you know, in Bowie's case, he was able to, to do that. But I think, in, I think he just, it's not necessarily because he's more resilient. I just truly believe that David Bowie was such a serious worker in a sense, like he, he was so ambitious, you know, and he was, he had, he was so diligent and he was, he had such high hopes for what he wanted to achieve. I think that alone is what ensured that he just remained committed on the path of like trying to work things out. I think if he didn't have that ambition, he, he you know, he might've just probably, I don't know, ended up struggling quite a lot. Yeah, they're like the drugs might have got him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the drugs, because he did struggle. 
with uh, very serious cocaine addiction in the mid 70s um, to the point where he was pretty much like, you know, not capable of working. Yeah, he was um, so skeletal. He was skeletal. He, he, you know, he was, he became delusional. He was hallucinating. And so isn't it interesting as well that he should become addicted to a drug that would induce psychotic symptoms? You know, it's like, it's almost like reaffirming a fear. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that he would go exactly towards the very drug that would induce that state. <laughs> so I think that's not an accident. I think he maybe needed to confront those demons in some way and then learn to master it or learn to integrate it and actually use that energy, like use that power and incorporate it into his work and get cleaned up and like look at it in a very serious way. Um, like a, like a, like a, you know, a larger art project, which was, he was always doing that. He was always utilizing those factors from his life to inform his, his artistry right up to his death. I mean, he even made an art project out of his death. I mean, that's incredible. It was amazing. Yeah. His record coming out on like Friday and then he died on like Sunday. Yeah. It was like, uh, yeah. Talk about someone who self-actualized. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Truly a very self-actualized, extremely, you know, evolved individual. I mean, that I don't mind telling you, Vanessa, you know, there are always these like little pet theories circulating around David Bowie, you know, people, a lot of hardcore fans love to think that he's an alien. He was only just visiting us, you know, it wasn't just an act. <laughs> he really wasn't a space alien. And I would, I'd like to think that that's true. Like I just, um, cause he just seems so advanced and evolved compared to so many other people. <laughs> yeah. But I like to see it as that he's what, what we could all be, you know, people, yeah. people were able to self-actualize to the extent that he was and really like follow their dreams and, uh, you know, remain driven and, you know, not get, you know, sucked down and completely depleted by the big, you know, capitalist machine, you know, mm -hmm. if more people were able to really do that, then more, we'd have many more people like David Bowie. It's really tragic that we don't actually. I know. I know. You're right. There could be more of them out mm -hmm. there, you know, um, but it's just so, so sad that so much potential, just gets cut down or squashed and oppressed yeah, in various ways. Institutions. I think your point too that you know his family was uh, like so talking about uh, psychosis, like what a horror it is and how taboo. And of course, it's horrible. People are suffering. Mm -hmm. But I think you know in a lot of other societies where people where where people there was a place for the person who heard voices you know they might be yes. an oracle or a person who works between worlds or listens to spirits and being um given a position you know that was respected you know if we if we had more of that kind of idea in in our society then, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be struggling so much or be put into institutions, you know, they might be listened to and they might be able to find their place uh, where they could be a healer or someone that could help people talk to their, you know, deceased relatives or make some sort of connection that other people aren't able to reach without that kind of conduit, you know. So uh, I think that's really a tragic part, part of the society is that we've, 
yeah, totally pathologize and just want to lock away people yeah. rather than, you know, seeing where they can fit in society and where their place is and helping them to find that place and support, supporting them in that journey instead of, you know, especially because people usually have psychotic symptoms, you know, in their teens, like late teens, or early 20s, which is already so, so chaotic of a time for most people. And then, you know, you have some sort of symptom and then the doctors tell you, you know, it's chronic, it's not curable, you're going to have this the rest of your life, and you have to be on medication the rest of your life, like that's not going to make anyone feel any better, you know, <laughs> it's just going to make them much more stressed out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is truly senseless to me that so much energy is invested in creating a culture of shame around these symptoms. So much energy is invested in deliberately not trying to understand and not actually trying to connect with that experience, just automatically attaching a shame label on it and storing it away, you know, just repressing it, hiding it away and brushing it under the rug, you know, and, you know, that is not a knee jerk thing. That is a conscious, deliberate, um, you know, system of creating and, and facilitating that process. And it would just take like a, a shift in the mindset to just simply redeploy that energy and approach this problem simply with more curiosity and a sense of wonder and ask the question, this is a type of energy that is mysterious. And I, you know, it causes uncertainty in me and in society, but maybe is there something productive here for mm -hmm. the individual and for, you know, the bigger picture? How can this be utilized um, in, in a functional way? Why does it have to be this shame uh, culture, you know, and it's amazing to me, you know, it, it would just take that one shift in the consciousness uh, and then so many things would change. I, I, I can't help but think that psychosis in particular is so taboo because it reminds us, let's say the normal, quote unquote, normal non-sufferer, it reminds us how fragile the you know, the collective reality really is. Yeah. We don't want to be reminded everything and we're not in control of everything. Exactly. Yeah. We don't, we, we, we have actually, you know, we're sort of just kidding ourselves in a way. We're sort of entering the game almost on a faith base and nothing is certain. There's nothing etched in stone. We're taking a hell of a lot for granted. A lot of Reality is just a house of cards. And so an, a psychotic individual exhibiting symptoms in front of us it produces a fear response precisely because it reminds us, the so-called non-sufferer, just actually how volatile things can get. And we don't want to be reminded of that. We want to continue, you know, curating our life on the pretext that everything is on a stable ground. And sometimes it's not. You know, and it was, it's just much easier for us to reassure and comfort ourselves in the moment by storing these people away and just repressing the knowledge that things are very fragile than to actually like productively approach this issue and say, what's really going on here? Let's be curious. Let's try and integrate these people. Maybe they have access to something that we could really use. You know, <laughs> it's just so sad.
Yeah, and bringing back that sense of wonder, like you said, you know. Yeah. I, I'm so I'm infinitely frustrated with this, just this attitude where people think that they know everything and understand everything. It's like, it's not possible. It's not possible. So stop pretending. Yeah, exactly. I don't even understand. I truly cannot even comprehend that that desire to understand and control everything. I would much rather surrender to the unknown. I find that actually so much more interesting and so much more dynamic. And there's a vibrancy to that. Um, you know, yes, of course it's fearful too. Like it's, it's not easy sometimes not being sure of something and it's normal to want to know where you stand, of course, but to uh, to the extent that people are so obsessive compulsive to the point of like just being so controlling and so rigid and unbending i think that's truly like i don't know it's just i think that's a waste of the life force yeah it's all death drive to me that's like yeah. that's to me the, the death drive it's not this aggressive impulse it's, mm. it's just this inertia you know where you just want to lock everything down and make it inert and dead I can't stand it. Well said. Exactly. That is exactly what it is. It's it's the it's the eroticization of repetition. Uh it's being attracted to um, you know, a groundhog way of living, just the same day in and out, you know. Um and 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 yeah, just ba- basically going through life as if between two planes of existence and never ever touching touching either side just being mortified just a kind of animated corpse it's a zombification of life and to hell with that <laughs> i just don't i have no interest in living like that it's it's it seems so pointless that reminds me too that we have to talk about when we had our psychoanalysis art in the occult conference in Copenhagen, you couldn't come because we had it the same as like yeah. London film weekend. But uh, you did this great presentation on the decaying female body in horror cinema. <laughs> and I just love how you like, you know, you're so pretty and you're like, oh, thank you. Have such a like beautiful speaking voice and you know all of this kind of psychoanalytic <laughs> lingo and theory and you're presenting it while like this like woman is like ripping her face off. You know? <laughs> It's like zombie film. And just the juxtaposition of that is just like that movie. What was it called? Eat? She's like, yeah, yeah. it was just like, (laughs) I was just like, I love this person. She's so amazing. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, thank you very much for the kind words. But I do like, I like the way that you, um, you contrast you know, how I at least aspired to present um, with the kind of extreme horror of the movies that I am very drawn to. It is quite comical. How, it's yeah, so I, good. I, yeah. I like brilliant. <laughs> I'm glad that effect is, is, is perceived by yourself and um, that is, it wasn't just like a, a, a futile attempt on my part because I do find it funny as well. I, I just like to play with that. I suppose, marked difference because a lot of the times you know horror movies are just you know readily dismissed you know it's it's very kind of popular and mainstream to be like oh no I don't watch uh horror movies as a matter of principle you know it's 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 supposed to denote some kind of um 
you know, moral supremacy or something that you're a good you're person. Too for horror. You're too highbrow or you're, you're too moral. You're too decent and good to ever watch something so crude and disgusting and vulgar, you know? And, um, so I always like to try and couch these things in a way that is disarming. And then like, I kind of throw people in at the deep end because I try and present theories, you know, in a, in as professionally as possible. And then the clip that follows, I mean, literally, it's just what you described, a woman auto-cannibalizing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do find that it's funny, so I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I would it was a pleasure to to take part even remotely in your um in your conference. Uh, you really had a very exceptional lineup of people. So it was an honor for me to be alongside them and yourself. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really good. And uh, we had some, like, a Swedish filmmaker named Martin Munte, and uh, his films are just amazing. I should actually send you, I don't know if they're online or that, or if he just sent them to us to be able to watch them for the conference, mm-hmm. but I'll see if they're on Vimeo because I think you would really like his stuff too. He's like, he's been in the like mainstream film business, you know, and then he's just kind of gotten fed up with the whole thing. And so he started making like independent films, his own films, and he okay. shoots them like in the Swedish uh, forests. And he's really much, very much like harnessing his kind of Scandinavian roots myth logically um so he's like bringing in a lot of like uh yeah this is a scandinavian mythology and, and creating these i don't know they're just really beautifully shot films they really come out really great i guess because he knows really knows what he's doing from working in the business for so long so it's really nice when someone can kind of take that skill set and then bring it to their own to their own work in that way and like really have his creative vision um, come through and then there was this other uh, pairing that I can also send you their link they were they were the ones that were going to come to London but only for like one day they called them uh-huh. um, Ohoboka and uh, they're out yeah. of Berlin and they they are very much like film purists like they're not online uh, like social media or anything like this uh, they have a website and they did send me links to the, to view their films online but they like do everything on film and they have like a place with like a co- collective where they all like develop film together and pay for it together um but they they're just like so um i guess it's experimental but they kind of create these stories where you're mm-hmm. like like it's a suit kind of a pseudo documentary where you're like is this a real thing that happened or is this not a real thing and they don't really tell you and you can't really tell you're like is this just like some crazy thing that they made up or did they really like discover this thing and it led them down this like crazy path i think after watching enough of their things i think they're things that they made up or perhaps something that they did encounter i mean probably most likely something they did encounter in their life that ended mm-hmm. up like triggering these kind of strain of ideas on their own in their own minds and then wow. they like created that through f- films yeah and it's like really there's one called Volkenschatten, which is like basically uh well i don't know i'll send you some links they're just uh they're just so yeah they're, they're like truly weird like we were talking about i think before we started rec- uh recording how i'm also like really like cronenberg is becoming really one of my favorite directors the more films of him's cut him out like his new f- newest film um oh. 
they're just like really keeping it weird. Like the Ohoboka is weird, like truly weird. Way it's like unsettling. You're like, what is happening here? Like I don't know <laughs> if this is real or if this isn't real. I, uh, I like that because I feel like so few things can kind of create that effect anymore. You know, that's fantastic. I love that. That sounds really brilliant. What an interesting way to work. Can I ask you, since you you mentioned uh, Cronenberg, what would you say is your favorite Cronenberg film? Oh, that's hard. But I think I think what happened that made me realize he's really becoming one of my favorites is watching. We we rented or we bought the new one uh, online and watched that, and then we also watched uh, on movie they had like his very first film and we watched them like kind of back to back over a weekend and just seeing that kind of continuity between his very first film and like his newest film was so interesting and yeah first film I also love his interest in psychoanalysis his first film had so much like psychoanalytic theory in it and then of course he did Dangerous Method which I think would have been great except for Kira Knightley really just like rubbed me the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> she did not do it for me as uh, Sabina Spielrein. But uh, other than no, that, I just, I, agree. Li- I just like that he did it anyway. And actually, he did Naked Lunch, too. So it's like he kind of likes all yeah, the things that I like. That's true. Um, so, like, yeah, he's got bros in there. He's got Psycho. And, and like, it, he told that story of Sabina Spielrein. That's kind of amazing. Um, and then he's got all of his, like, own just, like, super weird body horror stuff um which usually I don't I'm not really into body horror it kind of like icks me out mm-hmm. but like it, he he's just like I think I think as I've I've mentioned probably many times on this podcast I just really enjoy when people are like really doing what they enjoy like that just makes me happy I want people mm. to like be doing the thing that like really gets gets them off basically like they really, yeah. really love and I think just like the fact that he's just so into his like weird body horror stuff just <laughs> makes me love it you know <laughs> like he clearly mm-hmm. is just like obsessed with it and it and it's a uh, and it's a continuous from like his very first film all the way to his newest film which is like I think his first film was like 1969 so it's like to have that kind of continuity over that many years is really fascinating it really shows it's really his neurosis like he is in it he is in his neurosis and working with it yeah exactly like he's leaning into it he's not just um yes leaning into it I He's love leaning that. into it. Yeah, that's yeah. Always, and that's what Bowie did too, you know. Exactly. Like, you just gotta yeah. lean into it. Like, and that, that's what I think psychoanalysis should do. It's not supposed to like fix you. It's no. supposed to help you understand yourself so that you can kind of lean into it so that you can work with yourself instead of trying to fit yourself into some boxes of the way you think you should be. It's like, stop exactly. doing that. Just understand how you are and how you work. Don't judge it and just like work with it. You know, have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like let let your imagination guide you. Like let listen to your instincts, what they tell you. Um, yeah, th- that's it. That's exactly it. I mean, um, with 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 Cronenberg, uh, my personal favorites are the I like I love the Brood and I love Crash. Oh, those, Crash. Those two for me are like maybe his best. I also like Video Drum, but um. But yeah, I mean, the the thing with him is that, you know, oftentimes because of the nature of the work that I do, I, I, I utilize psychoanalysis to approach cinema and interpret cinema. I often get the question, people who attend my courses saying, but did the director do it on purpose? Like you're saying that this is a good illustration of hysteria, but did, 
the director know that? Like, did they read psychoanalysis? Is this done on purpose? And I would say 90% of the time, the answer is no. (laughs) 90% of the time, to my knowledge, when I've looked into it and researched it, most of the directors are not well-read in psychoanalysis. Lynch barely knows you know, the name Freud, I mean, he's, he's, he'd never even heard of Lacan. And so many of his films can be great ways of approaching those theories, but he didn't do that on purpose. Now that to me signals that, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of confirmation of the robustness of the concepts that they're able to show, you know, illustrate, you know, or, or be manifested in, in, in the process of making art. Um, so, in most cases, the directors are unaware of the theories. Now, in Cronenberg's case, that is not that is not true. He he actually is intentionally very well read. He pursues that knowledge consciously. Um, hence, why he made Dangerous Method. I mean, he you know that that's the result of years and years of study and and scholarship. And he also worked closely with organizations like the Freud Museum to get all those details right in portraying the life of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung in Vienna. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I also found Kira Knightley very off-putting in the film. Um, it's a very low point of an, an it, you know, problem-inducing <laughs> factor of the film. But even regardless, you know, quite aside from that, it's still worth watching. Um, but it is interesting. Like, he really knows his stuff. Alongside Cronenberg... In terms of you know directors who know and consciously employ psychoanalysis, Woody Allen, Louis Bunuel, and Hitchcock; those are the other three that I can think of alongside Cronenberg, who are intentionally, you know, learning about psychoanalysis and then utilizing those concepts in their films. Um, so there's not that many, you know. There's maybe a few others here and there, but on the whole, filmmakers are unaware of the concepts, but end up representing these ideas anyway. Uh, and I think that's a confirmation of the validity of the theories. Yeah, and it shows that the, the filmmakers that represent it are, are these auteurs, right? That like are really, really artists that are really like working with their own kind of neuroses and things and like creating their art. Um, yeah, in a, in a way that's like, not just conceptual, but like really working through something and and like kind of putting their mind on the film. So it makes sense that then if they're really like understanding the human psyche and working with it in that way, that the that the psychoanalytic theory would be seen there as well, because that's how psychoanalytic theory developed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, you know, and long may that tradition continue of the film medium itself being the space where filmmakers return again and again to work through and kind of, you know, ruminate and and circle back on their preoccupations, you know, their neuroses. And when they do that enough times and they produce and manifest enough films through that process, we start to see a pattern of what they tend to gravitate towards. And therein is the process of them developing their lexicon, their cinematic language and then we can identify a film because we've seen the symbology and the kind of you know whatever it is that they employ again and again the pattern starts to become apparent and you know that is the makings of an auteur you know like that really is um the the key 
to uh, developing your own style and your own aesthetic that is recognizable. And the the essential component of that is repetition. You know, you keep coming back and working through. You know, it's like it's like Freud's paper. You know, remembering, repeating, and working through. You just have to keep coming back, however frustrating it is. Um, come back and and go through the process and and be inquisitive and and be curious about it. But we should also make sure because you're talking about our tours. We should also make sure to mention the Bergman book. Yes, you wrote the oh my God. for my psychoanalytic <laughs> perspectives on the films of Ingmar Bergman book. Thank you, Mary. Of course, what an honor to have written the foreword for your wonderful book, which I have a copy of. And yeah, how exciting! I mean, what a huge accomplishment uh, on your part. Uh, the Bergman fans out there must be absolutely thrilled to get this book. Yeah, I think so. It was. It felt like the right thing to do moving to Sweden in 2018, which was his centennial. Uh, and Carl and I had the idea, oh, I should make a book about psychoanalytic wow. perspectives on Bergman. So it was a few years in the making. Oh, I'm glad it's out now. How amazing. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. So that's a good one. And I, I, yeah, so many things happen. It's like something comes out and it's just like on to the next thing. It's like, wait, I have to talk about that thing more. <laughs> I actually think the the event after yours at Morbid Anatomy, I'm going to have Carl, he wrote a, a piece on Bergman's film, The Hour of the Wolf, and it's really good. So I think we're going to have him present that for the next Morbid Anatomy event. Oh, great. So we'll talk about Bergman some. Fantastic. Um, did you actually see the film Bergman Island? I have not seen that yet. I have not watched it. Thank you for reminding me. I need to yeah. watch it. Yeah, because I would be curious to know. Here. Yes, I'm sure. I mean, I'd be so curious to know what you think of it. I, I really liked it. I'm definitely going to have to check it out. You know what I really want to see? I want to see this Weird Al Yankovic film, but I can't find it streaming here yet. What is it? What is this movie? It's called Weird the Al Yankovic Story, and apparently Evan Rachel Wood <laughs> plays Madonna, and Daniel Radcliffe plays Weird Al Yankovic, and apparently, <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing, and apparently it was like, they had this like Funny or Die series, you know, and yeah. uh, he had made like a pretend trailer for this pretend film about like his life as like art, artist, musician, biopic, and he made it in that kind of style where he's like, you know, drunk and like having anger <laughs> outbursts and whatever, like he's like a real rock star, right? And they're like, just got to get him under control, got to get him on the stage, you know, and in that short, the Funny or Die short was Aaron. Paul from Breaking Bad playing him um, and Olivia Wilde was playing Madonna and he's just like because he's oh. without Yankovic it's not really a biopic of his life it's like his, like <laughs> embellished fantasies or whatever so like apparently he has like an ongoing relationship with Madonna that's why she's in the movie <laughs> and I oh, saw wow. an interview yeah <laughs> I saw an interview with him where they're like oh like you know what is your relationship with Madonna really like and it was something like he met her like like backstage at like a talk show once for like six seconds or something you know like she just said like hi that's like actually <laughs> the entirety of his relationship with her but he's like woven her into like all of his <laughs> entire life story in this movie and it's it looks really <laughs> funny I just have to see it I really oh my like God. Evan Wood and yeah I think Daniel Radcliffe has done some really fun things since uh since yeah. Harry Potter so 
That sounds so funny. I, you know, it makes me also wonder because you know Julia Garner um, was the actress in from the from the Ozark. Um, she was actually cast to play Madonna in the in the biopic. But oh. then, yeah, but then production shut down on it. And I'm not sure what happened because my my understanding was that Madonna Ham picked her. You know, she she was everything was green lit, you know, by by Madonna herself. And I think that would have been a great choice. Julia Garner is a great actress. I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, Sabina Stent, who you did recent Morbid Anatomy event with on David Lynch, and we'll have to have you two back again later this year. Um, she said that there's a biopic coming up about by Lee Miller and that Kate Winslet is playing Lee Miller and uh-huh. Alexander Skarsgård is playing uh, uh, Roland Penrose. Oh, that really? Amazing. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So, Great cast. Wow. Yeah, I know. I want to see that as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, the one that's really on my radar at the moment is um, the new Ari Aster film with Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, there's a new one with Joaquin Phoenix. This yes. Mary Dream Come True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like my my spiritual brother out there. Like I love him to bits. Um we have the same birthday. Joaquin Phoenix and I have the same birthday. Mm-hmm. Um although he's four years older than me, but still. Um yeah, so this movie is it, it was initially called um it was going to be called Disappointment Boulevard, but now the the new title is Bo is Afraid. And it's a, well, it's hard to describe. It's sort of like a surrealist comedy horror film. And based on what I've seen in the trailer, it looks like, it It, it kind of reminded me a lot of, you know, the guy who directed um, Synecdoche, New York? Mm-hmm. Um, what is his name? Charlie Kaufman. Charlie, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it kind of made me think of that, you know, very experimental, surrealistic, um, but we'll see. I mean, I'm I, I'm a big fan of Ari Aster. I think he's like a brilliant young director, and uh, if he's got Joaquin Phoenix on you know on board, it, it's it, it's bound to it's be really be good. good. It's yeah. gonna be good. So at the moment, it looks like it will be released in April, but we'll see. I'm excited that our tiny cinema, well, first of all, is open. Thank you for your magic prayers. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that uh, uh, that it's playing some good movies next week. Uh, we're finally getting The Whale. So I'm really excited Excellent. to see The Whale. Wow, great. Yeah. I mean, wow, Brandon Fraser, Brandon Fraser, what an amazing actor. You know, he can do no wrong. I'm so glad he's back now. Yeah, I've been kind of binging Brandon Fraser movies since since it came out waiting Aww. for the whale. I know. It's like, oh, I loved him. Me it's too. Amazing. I always loved him so much. It was so sad when he sort of disappeared. And, you know, he's so talented. He deserves the best. He deserves the world. <laughs> yeah, I actually watched... Uh, 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 Sophia, Carl's daughter, wanted to watch... Um, one of his movies, I don't remember what it was called, but it was very silly. It was like animals, like he was part of a developer that was uh, like developing some forest and the animals were mad and they were like playing like tricks on him. And like, 
Uh, and then I realized when I was watching it that this is the movie that he was talking about that kind of made him reassess his life because I saw an interview with him where he said that like he found himself like upside down in like a porta potty for a movie. Wow. <laughs> and oh he was like, God. is this really why I got into acting? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then that happened in this movie. And I was like, oh, this is the movie that made him like <laughs> reconsider his life choices. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I thought it was a cute movie. It was definitely Definitely silly slapstick. I mean, it's like you know, animatronic yeah. animals like playing tricks on him in the forest. But like, it had a cute point. Like, don't destroy the environment. It's not nice. You know, so exactly. Yeah, worst movies you could make <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> Was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Well, just to, a couple of things. Both of them for Freud Museum related. Um, uh, we also have recently uh, launched a new book edited by Jamie yes. Rewers and Stefan Mariansky of the Freud Museum. And I contributed a, a chapter as well on um, it's called Freud Lynch Behind the Curtain. And it's employing psychoanalysis to approach the films of David Lynch and uh, highly recommend that book. It is published by Phoenix and, and, and then you know, looking forward into the year, I, in July, I will be coming back to the Freud Museum to deliver a lecture series on neurosis on film. So uh, this is just a little teaser. We ha I haven't yet um, shared the details online, depending on when you're listening to this. But uh, do check the Freud Museum website for more information on that course and the films that I'm going to be analyzing. Perfect. We're so glad to have you, Mary. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's so nice you. to talk and to you as always. Weekends for the for the David Bowie event at Morbid Anatomy. Exactly. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Bye, Mary. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Mary Wild. For more, follow her on social media at Psychstar. That's P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R at Twitter and Instagram. And join her at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mary Wild for exclusive content every week. Join us on Sunday, March 12th, live via Zoom at Morbid Anatomy Museum as Mary presents David Bowie's music videos and filmography. Please note that the time changes in the U.S. this Sunday, but not in the EU and U.K. So, the time is at 2 o'clock in New York City and 6 o'clock in the U.K. and 1900 in Central European time. You can listen to previous discussions with Mary Wilde at Rendering Unconscious Podcast at episode 49, 68, 158, and 208. Links to everything can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. And now, the song, I've Encountered You, 
a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy from the album Variation of Chaos, available at Bandcamp and all streaming services. Titles at Bandcamp are free download, name your price. Visit PeteMurphy.Bandcamp.com or HighbrowLowLife.Bandcamp.com Enjoy! We exit our daily program. Our daily narrative. I've encountered you. Creation may take place with witches oil in a new way. Thoughts, basic astrology minds, giving it new life and eventually We've created room for something new to grow, psychological, further, again, sacrifice, under the wheels, a battery, forgotten, pale, twisting, thighs, to be my wife, Brian Dyson. Eventually, their body has to die so they don't talk. Impulse. <laughs> 